Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 26. The last week of the life of Jesus is often referred to as Passion Week. Today is Palm Sunday. You'll notice the cross is draped in purple, the color of royalty. It was the day that Jesus passed into Jerusalem, and uh, as the people, as he passed by them, the people cried, Hosanna, and prepared the way by spreading palm branches and robes on the path. That name, Hosanna, means save now. It's a compound word. You, You heard it in the scripture reading today, in Psalm 118 and verse 25, the first two words, save now. I beseech thee. And so that's what they were saying, save us now. Um, They were actually, this was a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, Jesus was presenting himself as the king who is just, having salvation, riding upon a donkey. And that was a symbol of his, his lowliness, his meekness. The people were hoping for a king who would save them from the oppression of Rome, And yet he came for a different reason. The Son of God would later that week suffer and die in our place on the cross. Uh, We'll remember that death on the cross this Friday at 1 o'clock. I hope you can be here. Then the cross will be draped in black. And uh, that's a symbol of his death. Uh, Jesus invites you to come to salvation. He's meek and lowly. He doesn't beat the door of your heart down and force you to believe. He invites you to come to him. He wants you to make him king of your life, to submit to him as your Lord and as your Savior. On the following Sunday, next Sunday, we'll remember the resurrection of Christ from the grave. We'll celebrate that with the the cross being draped with a white cloth. And that uh, is a symbol of resurrection because through his resurrection, we are justified and our sins are gone. And so I trust that uh, as we go through this week, these events that we have read in scripture will be meaningful each day as we think about them. We've been looking at the subject of prayer on Sunday mornings for this year. It's following the theme found in Matthew 7, 7, Ask, Seek, and Knock. And in that series, we've studied the prayers of David, uh, the prayer of Moses, the two of the Lord's prayers, his pattern for prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer, and then the, the high priestly prayer in John 17. We spent several Sundays on that. But here in Matthew chapter 26, I'd like us to look at a prayer that took place at the end of Christ's earthly ministry, and it's the garden prayer. In verses 36 to 46, we have a record of this prayer. Matthew and Mark are the ones who give us the words of the prayer, but all four gospel writers will include this garden prayer. And so we have this, this wonderful prayer where Jesus submits his will to the will of the Father, and he wrestles in the Garden of Gethsemane, with drinking of the cup. As I said, the prayer is also found in Mark. It's Mark chapter 14, Luke 22, John 18. And we'll add some of the information from those texts as we go through the the message this morning. Just a very simple outline, the setting for the prayer, the sorrow of the Savior, and the surrender to the Father's will. 
The setting of the prayer is seen in verses 36 through 38. It's a familiar passage. We've, we've been here before as a congregation, uh, and yet it's good for us to revisit it and to think of what Jesus went through as he prayed for us. In verse 36, Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here, and watch with me. Let's look at the time, the people, and the place as we consider the setting of this scene. The time, we see that in the first word in verse 36, then. Then cometh Jesus with them. Then is, a, is a, a word that marks what has taken place up until then. This was the time of the Passover. All the Jewish men were required to go to travel to Jerusalem for three of the feasts. The feast of Passover, of Pentecost, and of the Tabernacles. And so they're traveling for this Passover and they, they, have, they have all come to Jerusalem to observe this, this holy time. The city was crowded. It was too crowded for everyone to find shelter, and so people slept wherever they could. Our focus narrows to a specific group of men. So for Jesus and his disciples, when we think of that word, then cometh Jesus with them, what had they just been through? And we can see that here in chapter 26, some of the events. In verse 7, this, this time is after Mary gave that offering of Spikner. It was after Judas left the table to betray him in verse 25. Down in verse 30, it's after the Last Supper was instituted when they had sung in him. It's after the disciples claimed that they would never deny him in verse 35. Notice the place. Unto a place called Gethsemane. If you were able to walk out the eastern gate, you can't now because it's been sealed up. They're trying to keep the Messiah from returning, but it won't stop him. But if you're walking out of the eastern gate of the Temple Mount and and go down into the, the Kidron Valley there, about 50 yards, you'd come to the brook Kedron. And crossing the brook, you'll find yourself on the slope that goes up to the Mount of Olives. It's a hill. It's, it's like a Michigan mountain. It's not craggy and rocky. You can walk up its slope. It rises about 330 feet above the old city of Jerusalem. The name Gethsemane means the olive press. And on the western side of the Mount of Olives were planted many olive trees, and there are still trees there today, some of them 900 to 1,000 years old. If you talk to the Franciscan monks that have their little monastery there, they'll tell you that those trees date back to the time of Christ. An olive press would have been located nearby, perhaps at the base of the hill in this, in this garden. The oil of olives was a staple in biblical times. It was used in the religious ceremonies for anointing. It was also used to fuel lamps for light. It was used in the cooking. The people here, we find in, in the second half of verse 36 and the first of verse 37, 
who were involved, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. Jesus entered the garden, remember, with only 11 disciples now. Judas was not with them. He had gone to let the chief priests and the elders know where they could find Christ. And they dispatched the temple police and some of the Roman soldiers. Verse 47 says it was a great multitude that came with Judas. This was his betrayal. And I believe when Judas kissed Jesus, and Jesus said to him, notice those words in verse 50. We won't get to that text today. But he said, friend, wherefore art thou come? And I believe he was giving Judas one last opportunity to repent, to change his mind. This garden was where the disciples and Jesus rested during the week. Judas knew that. In John 18 and verse 2, it says, And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oftentimes resorted thither with his disciples. The garden was probably surrounded by a stone wall had some kind of an entrance, perhaps a gate. And so Jesus left the eight disciples at the entrance and told them to sit there while he prayed. And then he took Peter, James, and John with him further into the garden. Isn't it wonderful to think of these three who are called the inner circle? He told them that his soul was exceeding sorrowful even unto death. And that they were to tarry in in another place, not with the other eight, but now in another place, and watch with him. These three were especially involved in those moments that Christ shared with none others. They were with him when Jesus raised the daughter of Jairus from the dead. They were with him at the Mount of Transfiguration. Now they're invited to come further into the garden with Christ. I wonder, as I read that section, would I have been invited further into the garden with Christ? I had an evangelist friend who used to say, he will let you be as close to him as you want to be. Oh, that we would be in that inner circle. That we would be intimate with Christ. In Luke twenty-two forty-one. It says they were about a stone's cast away. So these three, perhaps 20, 30 feet away from Christ as he prayed. Let's move from the setting to the sorrow of the Savior. In verse 37, we read that Jesus began to be sorrowful and very heavy. And those words began to be show us that this feeling, this strong emotion that was overwhelming him increased as he walked into the garden. Sorrowful means that he was filled with grief, overcome with sadness. And and then the words very heavy. He was filled with distress. Have you ever gone through something that you just feel weighted down physically? This is what Christ was facing. In Mark chapter 14 and verse 33, it says, And he taketh with him Peter and James and John, and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. And so we have that same reference to that heaviness. But another description is given by Mark. He says that Christ was sore amazed. It means that he was astonished and afraid. 
D. Edmund Hebert writes, greatly amazed suggests a feeling of terrified surprise. How difficult that is for us to understand how the Son of God could be surprised. He wasn't surprised about what was taking place. This was his, God's plan from eternity. He knew why he came. He knew the cross was ahead. And so he's not surprised by that, but he, he's also the Son of Man as well as the Son of God. He is, he is the God-man. And these words help us get a sense of the, of the humanity of Christ. He felt the same agony and pain in his physical body that, that we would feel. As a man, he was overwhelmed with those fe same feelings we would have of the anticipation of the suffering and death. This is what makes him a merciful and faithful high priest. There are two verses in Hebrews that speak of that. Hebrews 2.17 Therefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. And then that wonderful verse in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And so he's going through these, these emotions, these human emotions, as he goes into the garden. He verbalized his suffering with, with Peter, James, and John. In, in verse 38, Then, after they had left the disciples at the entrance, he saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. And he uses the same word that he did in verse 37 and, and, and adds this. We have the, the translation says exceeding sorrowful. There's a, there's a prefix intensifying the grief that he was facing. And so that's how they translate that word, exceeding sorrowful. And then that phrase, even unto death. Alfred writes, Our Lord's whole inmost life must have been one of continual trouble of spirit. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But there is an extremity of anguish now, reaching even to the utmost limit of endurance, so that it seemed that more would be death itself. He continued agonizing in prayer. Luke, remember his occupation was a physician, a doctor, and he writes an interesting thing in his gospel, Luke 22:44. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Being in agony. Again, that idea, becoming. This agony was increasing and intensified. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. The word for prayer, yukamai, it means to, to just have a, a request. For, it can be, it's often used in scripture of making a request with other people or making a request in prayer. But here Luke uses that word with a prefix, prasukamai, which means it's only used in, in praying to the Father. And so that prefix intensifies the idea of the request. He prayed more earnestly, more intently. It's interesting, as the agony increased, 
so did the intensity of his prayer. And can I stop for a moment and, and make a, an application in our own lives? As sorrows increase, what do you do? We ought to follow the pattern, and our prayers should increase. Commensurate with the sorrow should be our prayers. Let the intensity of your prayers measure up to the struggle that you face. That's what Christ did. Don't give up. Pray longer. Pray with more fervency. Pray with greater intensity. And then we see that phrase that Luke writes, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, some, some writers will say that the sweat flowed as freely as blood as he agonized in prayer, as it were. Not actual blood, but sweat compared to the flow of blood. Others give medical explanations. Godet writes, cases are known in which the blood, violently agitated by grief, ends by penetrating through the vessels which enclose it and driven outward escapes with the sweat through the transitory glands. And I can't but think that Luke, the doctor, knew that, and that's what he's writing. What, what's the reason for this agony? I don't think it's because of the thought of, of physical pain, of the death. That's where most attention is given in churches today and in modern religious thought, that it was his, his passion, his suffering, his intense pain that most grieved the Savior. But I think what most grieved him was the consideration of taking upon him the sins of the world. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. That was at the beginning of his ministry. This was something that Jesus knew would be taking place. Isaiah prophesied it in Isaiah 53, 10 and 11. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt see his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his day, days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge, that is, by the knowledge of Christ, saving faith and the knowledge of him. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. How clear is that? 600 years before it took place. Jeremiah wrote in Lamentations 1.12, Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold, and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. It was, it was the Father's reaction and response to the sins of the world that were laid on Christ, our sin-bearer, that caused him this agony, this suffering, this grief, the sorrow that overwhelmed the Son of God was because of sin. The struggle in the garden is spiritual. And his request shows it. He prayed, let this cup pass from me. And then we see his surrender to the will of the Father. Arno Gabeline writes, what a holy scene it is that is now before us. We are face to face with the most solemn event in the life of the Son of God, save that hour when he hung on the cross 
forsaken by God. It is a scene which draws out the heart in worship and adoration. For it was for us he passed through the deep agony. For us that he, the mighty creator, fell on his face into the dust of the earth that he had created. The sorrow of the Savior. And last we'll see the surrender to the Father's will. And this is the heart of his prayer. Verses 39 to 46. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto his disciples and findeth them asleep. And saith unto Peter, What, could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. I'm struck with the fact that when Jesus was pouring out his heart to the Lord in prayer, about, or his Father in prayer about this cup, his disciples weren't praying with him. He was alone in the garden. They were sleeping. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, in verse 37, it says, And he cometh and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, Simon. Now, Matthew didn't give us that indication, but, but Mark adds it, that when he spoke to, to Peter, he said, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldst not thou watch with me one hour? Watch ye and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. When Jesus found his disciples asleep, these three, he singled out Peter, and he called him by the name Simon. He's saying, you're supposed to be that rock-like character. Where is it now? You're acting like the old Simon. Uh, I remember Jesus, and you do, addressed Peter as Simon when he gave him the opportunity to reaffirm his love. Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? Peter had told Jesus just a few hours earlier that he would never deny the Lord. Now, he wasn't the only one who said that. It said that the other disciples agreed and they said the same thing. Mark 14, 31, but he, Peter, spake up the more vehemently, if I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. Likewise also said they all. But Peter was the one who was the spokesman, and so he's the one whom the Lord spoke to. I find it encouraging, as I read later on what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4, 7, that he learned from his mistakes. He made a lot of them, but he learned from them. And he said in 1 Peter 4, 7, But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And I can't but think, he, when he penned those words, he was thinking of when he was sleeping Jesus explained to the disciples that this was a spiritual battle. 
He told them the spirit is, is ready or willing, or it is prothumas, given to a strong desire, but the flesh is weak. And there is that battle that takes place. And these men were tired. It was a long night. And Jesus said that, and then he went back and prayed the second time and returned and found them asleep again. The reason now is their eyes were heavy. Matthew says, and he left them. I don't think he, he, he walked away without waking them up because in Mark, he writes, neither wist they what to answer him on that second trip. And so I think, I think they were awake, whether they were groggy or guilty, they didn't know what to say to him at that point. And he prayed the third time and again returned to find them sleeping. And this time he said, sleep on, take your rest. By then, Judas and the crowd had arrived to apprehend the Savior. But Jesus, in this prayer, and this is the capstone, I think, of this passage, he surrenders to the will of the Father. Matthew and Mark record, as I said, the words of this prayer. Mark tells us that Jesus addressed the Father with the name Abba, a common name that children would call their fathers, some say Jesus would never use terminology like that toward God. It sounds too familiar. But it shows us exactly the unity that they had, a family bond between son and father. Hard for us to understand the three in one, a trinity in one, one God. Mark also records the statement of Jesus that affirms God's power and ability to answer. All things are possible unto thee. That's what Jesus told the Father. And, and, and again, how can, how can we wrap our minds around that? Because Jesus was there at creation. He saw, and the Holy Spirit also involved. The Father created the universe. All things are possible unto thee. And this is where we must... We, we, we must start in our prayers. All things are possible. God is omnipotent. He's omniscient. When you go to him prayer, go with that faith. All things are possible. And then the recognition, not my will, but thine. Here's his request. Matthew says, let this cup pass from me. Mark says, take away this cup from me. And in each of those, nevertheless not, nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. What's well, the will of the Father? In John 18, 11, this passage is written after the garden prayer, before the cross. Then said Jesus unto Peter, put up thy sword into thy sheath. The cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? And I emphasize that because it's shall. It's something still to take place. The cup wasn't, wasn't uh, drank in the garden. It was later. Shall I not drink it? He spoke of the cup as a future event. It was the, the cup of suffering, the, the su suffering God's wrath. The cup of taking the sins of of mankind, all of them in this cup. A cup of death as a punishment for those sins. I think all of these are included as Christ requested that this cup might pass from him. Jerry Vines writes, in the Bible, drinking from a cup is a symbolic way of saying you're going to experience something to the fullest. Drinking the last drop from that cup. 
the last of man's sins, all of our sins were taken by him. The punishment of the Father, all of it laid on him. And he resigns to the will of God. His natural desire was to recoil from the cup, but he prayed nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. He suffered for our sins. That was the reason that his soul was exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. As we see the Lord in the agony of prayer, we have to remember it was because of this cup, the sins of mankind, every sin of every man, of every time in history, past and future, all of the sins. This was a, a suffering, again, of far greater pain than the nails in his hands and feet and the spear in his side, and the thorns on his brow, than the ridicule and the shame. He agonized in prayer in the garden because he is the spotless Lamb of God, never sinned, took upon him your sins, my sins, the sins of the world. There are many things in this passage that God can use to challenge us. I'm always amazed at how points that I never thought were in the message, someone will come up and say, that's what I needed. The Lord does that. And so I'm convinced that the Holy Spirit will use his word to change us. The primary lesson here, as far as application goes from the garden prayer, is that Jesus suffered the agony of our sin. He drank the cup of our sin, and we were the ones who rightfully deserved the wrath of God, the punishment for our, our sin. He died in our place. And we must never forget what he did for us on the cross. If you haven't trusted Christ as your Savior today, he died for your sins. I said the sins of the whole world, but the appropriation of that forgiveness must be received. If not, it's a, it's a rejection of his love. Don't walk away from his love, his sacrifice, his agony, his payment for your sin. Accept him today. Another important lesson, I think, is in order to accomplish the will of God, there has to be this submission to his will. Lord, this is what I'm struggling with, but it's not up to me. Your will be done. And maybe you're in a place going through something right now where you're just saying, I'm, I'm having a difficult time with that. Would you just surrender it to him today? Not my will, but thine be done. So another great application from the passage. So whatever the Lord is speaking to your heart about today, I, I encourage you to let him make the change in your life. Submit to his will. Let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful for this event that we've looked at, and, and we're, we're just overwhelmed by all that's here and all that you went through willingly for us. I pray that we would respond in faith, in love, 
in, in a greater appreciation for what you've done for us on Calvary. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.